Well, good morning. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. Good morning. Man, we are in the presence of the Lord, and it is a place that we want to be today. And we're glad you're here, especially if you're first-time guests. Uh, but, you know, I was thinking about this this week that, you know, when you think about Christmas, I mean, how many of you like that song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year? How many of you like that? I'm not going to sing it for you, so don't be alarmed. But, but I mean, I love the song, and you think about it, I mean, um, when it comes to Christmas, and it comes about this time of the year, I want us to think about this for a minute. It is the, the fact that the light has come into the world. Then when we think about Christmas, it's, it's the idea that, that the Son of God, the light of the world, came into the world. So why do we call him the light? Because the world is a reflection of what? Darkness. And the light has come. And I think John says it best when he says this in John chapter 1, for the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus became one of us and to come to this world. The light has come. Now how many of you have a nativity set set up somewhere in your house right now? Come on, let me see your hands. I love Nativity Set. And you have the wise men. Please don't put the wise men there. It was like 18 months later. We can have a conversation later about that. But, I mean, it took me years to allow my wife to put the wise men in the same set because they just weren't there. But that's beside the point. But many of you have Nativity Sets, and you, and you have them out, and they look pretty, and they look beautiful, and some of them are very, very expensive, and some of them are like the little people Nativity Set, and it's like they're kind of cool. I mean, so we have a wide variety. But here's the thing. We look at Nativity Set, typically we think of how cute and adorable that scene must have been, right? That's what we think of. And I want to submit to you today that it wasn't that cute, adorable scene when it actually happened. It was a scandalous event. In fact, the fact that Jesus came, the way he came, how he came, if you were to look at the culture in which he came, it was nothing short of scandalous. The way he came was not what they thought. The kind of king they were looking for is not the kind of king that he was. And everything about the birth of Jesus, the fact that the light has come, was all scandalous. And so today I want us to look at the scandalous beginnings of Jesus. So if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We're going to be in Matthew for probably close to a year now. And I'm so excited as we begin this journey going through the gospel of Matthew. But Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Before we get there, I want to give you a bit of background. Now, hopefully you picked up one of those journals because some of you don't like to write in your Bible. Some of you don't want to shove those 52 uh, worship folders in your Bible. If not, you can pick one up when you're done. It's a great way for you to keep all your notes from Matthew together and in one place. But let me give you some background to Matthew. Matthew was one of the disciples of Jesus, right? I mean, he was a tax collector. Jesus calls him out. He follows Jesus. At some point, he buys into Jesus, and he writes one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew wrote his Gospel somewhere around 80 AD. In other words, about 50-some-odd years after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended, Matthew writes his Gospel. Now, here's what's important to know about Matthew. Matthew predominantly wrote to Jews. His gospel is predominantly directed toward the Jewish nation, those who are Jews that believe in Jesus and those who are Jews that haven't bought in yet. He's writing to Jews. And you say, Doug, how do we know that? Well, there's a, several reasons. I'm going to give you two or three of them. The first one is this. It's the kind of terminology that Matthew uses. For example, if you were a Jew in that day, there is one name that you would not say because it was so sacred, it was so holy, it was so revered. You would not say the name of God, or you would not say the name Yahweh. That's what they would say, Yahweh. They wouldn't say that. So in Matthew's gospel, you never hear him talk about the kingdom of God. It's always the kingdom of heaven. Why would Matthew do that? Because he wanted to so honor the name of God, and because the people he was writing to, he talks about the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of God. 
Another example that we know that Matthew wrote to the Jews is because the references that Matthew gives. Matthew talks about David. He talks about Moses. He talks about Abraham. Now, can you think of three greater characters in Jewish history than those three characters? Right? Come on. Are you with me this morning? So I'm with you. Man, I want you to be with me today because this is good stuff today. All right? Now, there's three characters he talks about that, 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 that the other guys don't necessarily spend that much time on them. But Matthew, as we go through the gospel of Matthew, you're going to hear the name David. You're going to hear Abraham. You're going to hear Moses mentioned. Now, Matthew also recites and quotes the Old Testament almost twice as many times as any other gospel writer. Now, why would he do that? Why would he say, and as the prophet Isaiah said? Because he's trying to draw a picture for this Jewish generation. Now, another reason we know that Matthew wrote to the Jews is because every gospel writer had an agenda with what they wrote. Now, for example, I grew up in church, and I, I guess somewhere in my head, I thought that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John must have had, like, dinner together, and they sit down at a table and go, hey, let's write the, the, the gospels together, and let's kind of recount our own stories, and let's talk about those, and I'm going to tell this story, and you tell that story, and we'll all tell this story. I mean, I kind of thought that, and that is flawed thinking. They did not all sit around a kitchen table around, you know, chicken tenders and french fries and go, let's write these gospels. The Holy Spirit spoke to each one of them individually. Now, there's some borrowing that happened, but here's, let me give you what the gospels, the emphasis. Luke's gospel, his whole emphasis is that Jesus is the son of man. Now, the whole gospel of Luke is all about the poor, the outcast. And so Luke is trying to drill down on the fact that Jesus is the Son of Man. Yes, we know he's fully God, but he is fully man, and Luke drills down on that. And then you've got John's gospel. John reads very different than the other gospels, if you've read it. You know what I'm talking about. It reads so differently. But John's focus was is that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why John 1.1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that clears it up, doesn't it, right? You're like, wow, that's so super simple, simple, easy to understand. The word referring to Logos, referring to Jesus, that in the beginning was Jesus, Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. I mean, John's gospel is driven by that Jesus is the Son of God. And then Mark, I love Mark. Mark has a very clear agenda. It's that Jesus is the suffering servant who came to slay the devil. I love that. Because when you read Mark's gospel, he skips the birth. He didn't speak any time on the baptism. It starts with Jesus casting out demons. Because for Mark's gospel, it's all about good versus evil, and Jesus is the suffering servant. And then we've got Matthew. Here's Matthew's agenda. You ready? That the long-awaited king has come. That the one you've been waiting for, King Jesus, is that king. So the Jewish people, we know from the way he wrote, how he wrote, and his agenda that 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 Matthew was predominantly writing to the Jewish people. And the thing we know about this is that when Matthew talks about this long-awaited king, you're going to see this as we go through Matthew, is that Matthew sets up this idea that, that I mean, this is when he's asked the question, who was the greatest figure in all of Jewish history for the Jewish people? Who was the greatest figure, do you think? You can, you can shout it out. Abraham would be one. That would be important, right? Who would be another one? Okay, the one person you don't talk bad about is Moses, right? I mean, Moses had a story. Now listen to this. Matthew, as we go through it, you're going to find out Matthew's advocating this, that Jesus is greater than Moses. Now you want to talk about scandal? <laughs> I mean, you're writing to a Jewish people, and you say, oh, by the way, one of the greatest guys in all of the history that you guys celebrate, Jesus is greater than him. You know why? Because Moses received the law, 
But Jesus fulfilled the law, right? So Moses is a greater, Jesus is greater than Moses. And so Matthew, you're going to see all these things in here. But I want you to look with me in Matthew chapter 1 as we begin. Just giving a little bit of background there. And in chapter 1, if you read it, I gave you a little preview last week about what chapter. If you read it, here's the one thing you know about genealogies. There's a lot of names in there. Anybody ever studied your ancestry? You tried to trace it back? Okay, oh, three of you good. The rest of us is like, we don't care. We're just here. We're glad to be here. We're glad to be breathing. doesn't matter our heritage, where we came from. I'm kind of that way. And, of course, Ancestry.com, a lot of people get on there, and they try to find their way back. Here's what you know in genealogies. There's a whole heck of a lot of names that you just cannot say, right? And you wonder the connection point. Now, listen, the good news today is I'm not going to read all 17 verses of the genealogy. But there are two things that I want us to grab from this, this account in Matthew 1 that is huge for the Jews of that day and today, but it's also very huge for us today as we get to the very end. Here's the first one, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Before we read it, I want you to know this. This is the first thing we're going to draw is this, is that Jesus is the promised king. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now just stop right there. Now you look at that one verse and go, okay, what can we really get out of this, this verse? But I'm going to suggest to you, there's a lot. Because he says, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. And now, Abraham and David would be an immediate connection to the Jewish people. But let's back up for just a minute. Why would, why would he use this kind of terminology? Because he wanted to communicate that Jesus is the promised king. He starts with the book of genealogy. The word genealogy in the Greek translates the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, the book of new happenings. So in other words, he's saying, listen, all the Jewish people, do you think they would have known their genealogy? Do you think they would have known how they trace back to David and how they would have traced back to Abraham and how they would have traced back to Adam? Do you think they would have known that? Come on, not rhetorical. Do you think they would have known that? Yes, they would have known that. So here's Matthew, and the very first words is, now the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ. Well, wait a minute. We have our own genealogy. And that traces all the way back to this dude named Adam. And we know the path of that. So what is Matthew's agenda? He's like, listen, there's a new beginning that's happening today. There's a new beginning that has taken place. There's a new Genesis. And so for Jewish people, this idea of genealogy and Genesis would have taken them back to Adam. Now, what do we know about Adam? Come on, help me this one, because you're not with it this one. we got to get on this. I mean, what do we know about Adam? Come on, somebody tell me. What do we know about Adam? Don't say it was Mary to Eve. That's a lame one. All right, what do we know about Adam? What? God created him. God breathed into him. And he was created in the image of God, the imago dei. He was created in the image of God. We also know this about Adam. He was instrumental in bringing sin to the world. Thanks a lot, Adam, right? And you know what else Adam did when you start looking at it thoroughly? Is Adam ruined humanity's connection with God. One of my favorite things in Genesis is when it talks about how God would go to Adam and Eve and he would walk with them in the cool of the day. I don't know if we have one of those in Florida, but you can imagine what that must have been like, right? Can you imagine the evening time and God the Father, I don't know what this looked like, but the presence of God was just present and he walked with that. Can you imagine that? And yet Adam, who's created, who God breathed breath of life into him, who was created in the image of God, he now has allowed sin, he brought it into the world, and now he has ruined our connection, humanity's connection with God. So when you say Genesis for a Jew, it would have taken them back there. It would have taken them back to Adam. But now there's this Jesus, right? 
the genealogy of who? Jesus. Now, where does Jesus take us to? Well, he was created in the likeness of man, right? He became flesh and he dwelt among us, John says. He was created in the likeness of man. But Jesus did not bring sin into the world. Jesus brought what into the world? Salvation, right? And he didn't destroy and ruin humanity's connection with God. He redeemed humanity and restored our ability to have a connection with God. Now, please don't miss this. This is crucial because for a Jewish person, they would have said, okay, the book of genealogy. Matthew said, there's something new happening. See, the genealogy you know is of a God created in the image of God who brought sin into the world and ruined our connection with God. But the Jesus that I'm talking about, man, this is a new beginning. This is a new pathway. This is a new genealogy. And he was creating like some man, but he is redeeming humanity, and he's brought salvation to the world. See, he has flipped the script from what they know to this Jesus of Nazareth. So the first thing he's trying to communicate is that, in essence, is that, that Jesus is the new Adam. The Adam of old that ruined us, wrecked us, brought sin to the world. Jesus is a new Adam. In fact, Paul talks a lot about this in Romans. Where sin came in the world through one man, redemption came through another. Right? He is the new Adam. The second thing I want you to notice is that he is, let's go, can we put that verse back up there if we could, that, that, the verse one, that he is Savior. It says Jesus. Everybody say Jesus with me. Jesus. Now say it like you really mean it. Jesus. There you go. There you go. That name in the Greek would be translated Jesus, right? Jesus. Now you know what it translates in the, in the Hebrew? Yeshua. Do you know what that, how we translate Yeshua into English? Joshua, are you, are you, so track with him for just a minute here. Jesus is, yes, is, is Jesus, and because there's no J's in Greek. You just need to know that. There's, you know, so so there's, there's Jesus, right? And then the Hebrew, this is the most important part, Hebrew, it's Yeshua, which is Joshua. Now, who was one of the greatest characters of all of Israel's history? Joshua. What did Joshua do? He followed after Moses, and he led people into the promised land. Is it possible that the name Jesus itself gives an indication to who he's going to be? Another Yeshua, another Joshua. In fact, the name Jesus literally means Jehovah is salvation. That's what it means, that God is salvation. The name Jesus itself implies the person that Jesus is going to be. He is going to be a man who delivers people from darkness to light, and he is Savior, Jesus, Yeshua, he's our Savior. So he says, listen, there's a new genealogy. He's a new Adam, but he's also, Jesus also, he is Savior. And then he says this in verse 1, he is the Christ. Now it says this in verse 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It really should be translated, some of your translations will say, Jesus the Messiah, and it should be translated, Jesus the Christ. Now, and I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, and I will continue to say it. In, in the original languages, when you use the word the, it's the sign of the definite article, meaning it's the only one. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, he's saying there is no other way, there is no other truth, there is no other life. I am it. So when it says Jesus the Christ, that was huge for the Jewish people because the word Christ in the Greek is Christos. And here's what it means. It means Messiah, 
or anointed. That's what it means. Christos means to be anointed or to be the Messiah. Now, in Jewish history, there's only three kinds of people that are anointed by God. And only three kinds of people that are viewed to be Messiah or to be saving or to be investing and interrupting and intervening in history. Only three kinds of people that are anointed by God. Here's the first one. Prophets, right? We see those in the Old Testament. Priests, those who stand before God on behalf of a nation. And kings. Those are the only three categories of people that were ever anointed by God in the Old Testament. Prophets, priests, and kings. And so for him to say the book of genealogy of Jesus the Christ, which should be the Christ, for him to say that, he's saying that Jesus is all three of these. He is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. He is the prophet who's the ultimate lawgiver. He's the king which every knee will bow to, and he is the priest who not only offers his blood on the, the altar, but he offered his own blood on the altar for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus is all three. He is prophet, he is priest, he is king. He is the Christ. Now, I know in today's culture, uh, you listen to that and you go, okay, this is really great information, but, but I don't understand the implication of this. Listen to me. If you are a Jewish person, if you grew up with a Jewish descent in this day and time, and you hear what Matthew's saying, he's starting off by saying, Jesus is a new Adam. The genealogy that you knew, the one that ruined and wrecked history, Jesus is bringing a new one. And he's redeeming history. He's restoring history. He's given us a chance to connect with God. But know that, he is Savior. His name implies his role, which is to seek and to save that which is lost. But he is, listen to me, he is the Christ there is no other prophet greater than Jesus. There is no other king greater than King Jesus. There is no other priest greater than Jesus. He is the Christ, the Christos. He is a prophet, priest, and king. He is all three in one. Now, for Jewish people, that would have been mind-blowing to them. Because you're saying that he's not only a king who reigns and rules, but he's a priest who serves and teaches, but he's also this prophet who instructs. Yes, and he's not one of many. He is the Christ. If you're with me on that, say, I got it. And that's huge today. So he is Christ, but he's also one more thing we see here as Jesus the promised king. He is the son of David and Abraham. And this is definitely a direct connection to the Jewish people. Now, David was a sinner, right? We know David's sin, right? In Samuel, in Samuel, right, he talks about David sinning with Bathsheba. But you know also David was a terrible father. Did you know that? Read the story of Absalom. David was a bad dad. But yet he is the royal descent of Jesus. The royal line goes strictly through David. And then we got Abraham. Abraham at times produ produced a lot of faithfulness. He was very faithful. But do you remember what he did twice with his wife, Sarah? He lied about her, right? He said that she was his what? I mean, wives, isn't that kind of degrading, right? Well, I'm not married to her. She's my wife, right? I mean, I mean, my sister. And so that was terrible. And so he lied about her. But yet, but yet Abraham was a father of a great nation. Now, why is, why, can we put verse 1 back up, please, sir? Why is Matthew reiterating the son of David and the son of Abraham? Because he wants them to know this, that Jesus is the promise, he is the fulfilled promise of God that he made to Abraham and to David. 
that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Jesus is of the royal descent of David, and Jesus is of the racial descent of Abraham. He is the perfect fulfillment of every promise that God made to Abraham and made to David. It's found in Jesus. Now, for a Jewish person, now today you're like, oh, this is good stuff. I'm going to write this down. Listen, for a Jewish person, this would have blown their mind because they had ideas. They had thoughts, philosophies of how this king was going to come. And I just want to say to you, none of them thought it was this way. None of them thought that he was going to bring a whole, this whole new genealogy, this genesis, something new was on the horizon. None of them thought that. None of them really put into perspective that he was savior, that he had come to save his people. None of them had put into perspective that he was not just a prophet, a priest, a king, but he was the prophet, the priest, the king. He was the Christ. And that he is the perfect fulfillment of every promise God ever made to Abraham and David. It's all found in Jesus. Now, if you were a Jew, would that just not blow your mind? Now, let me tell you why this is important, all right? This is why this is so important for us and for the Jewish people back then and today. is because Jesus, in Jesus, we gain everything that was lost in Adam. Think about that. In Jesus, we gain everything everything that was lost in Adam. In Jesus, we gain forgiveness of sin. In Jesus, we gain promise fulfilled. In Jesus, we gain a connection with God. In Jesus, everything that was lost in Adam can be found again. Now, for Matthew writing to a Jewish group of people, this this would be scandalous. You mean it's not about keeping the Mosaic law? It was never about keeping the Mosaic law. You mean it's not about going to the temple and offering my sacrifices? And do, no, no, it was, it, was, it was never about your outward stuff. It was about your heart. And what Matthew wants the Jewish people to know is that in Jesus, everything we lost with Adam, we gain. Forgiveness. Promise fulfilled. But most importantly, a connection with our Heavenly Father. So Jesus is the promised king. The second thing I want you to notice as we look at the genealogy, you're like, man, that's a lot for one verse, isn't it? But that, I mean, listen, when it's, it's there. It is there, and a Jewish people, that would have blown them away. So the first thing I want you to notice as we look at the genealogy is that Jesus is the promised king. Here's the second thing. The genealogy is a reflection of God's story of grace. It's all about the story of God's grace. Look with me in verse 17, the last verse in this section. It says this. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon was 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ was 14 generations. Now, in this small little section here, here's what, here's what we know, is that the, one of the ways that God showed his grace and his story of grace is through the history of Israel. He mentions three time frames. The first time frame he mentions is from uh, Abraham to David. Now, you don't have to read all that because that would be a lot of reading to do. But from Abraham to David, there was a lot of things going on. That was a time when Israel was wandering. There was a time when they were enslaved. There was a time when Moses delivered them out of Egypt into into the desert. It was a time of conquest, and it was a time of covenant. It was a pretty good time at times. And the second time period he mentions, the time from, from David to the time where they were taken in captivity to Babylon. Now, let me tell you what that time was about. That time was a time of decline. Israelites were not doing well. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been destroyed. Now the southern kingdom is taken and, sh- and kind of and herded off to Babylon. 
It was a time of decline. It was a time of apostasy. They were believing the wrong stuff. They were following other gods. But it was a time also of tragedy. They lost the very thing that God gave them. Now listen, we don't know this and we don't think this way. But in 587 B.C. when the temple was destroyed, when it was destroyed, can you imagine how that would have wrecked the heart of the Jewish people? The place that represented the presence of God, where they would go to worship their God, it's gone, wrecked, ravaged, many of them killed. Only the smartest of the smart were even taken into Babylon. And so this was a time of tragedy. But then he talks about the time from when they came out of Babylon to the time of Jesus. And listen, that was a time of captivity. That was a time where they're still captive to different people. But ultimately, it was a time of frustration. You know why it was frustration? Because in the book of Amos, God promises this, that there's going to come a famine on my people. But not a famine of food or famine of water, but a famine of my presence. In other words, there was a season. In fact, there was 400 years between your Old Testament and your New Testament. And here's what we know about that time period. God does not speak. He stays silent. God is silent for 400 years. Think about that. How many generations is that? 400 years, God is silent. Can you imagine the people of God being frustrated by that? You better believe it. Because it wasn't like they lived through it, right? It was, they were born in it. They lived, they died, and he's still silent. So it's through the history that we see God's grace because here's the deal. Israel had great moments of unfaithfulness. I mean, you can look through the book of Judges. You can look at Israel's history. You can just look all throughout the Old Testament. Here's what you find. Israel continued to be unfaithful. But the reason that Matthew talks about this genealogy and these people that represent all these generations in verse 2 through 16, the reason he talks about them is to remind us that even when Israel was unfaithful, God was what? Always faithful, right? Come on, look at me right now. Look at me. You can read verse 2 through 16 and pronounce all those names that I can't pronounce. That's fine. But here's the point. The reason that Matthew lays out the genealogy and ends with chapter and verse 17 about all these different generations to remind us that if you look over Israel's history, here's what you see, that Israel was always unfaithful, but God was always faithful. They always rebelled, but God was always present. He loved them. He cared for them. Even when he chose not to speak, doesn't mean he abandoned them. God was always faithful. Think about it this way. Here's a nation that did not deserve to be part of the story of God, but they were. See, they received what they did not deserve. You know what that's called? Grace. They received what they did not deserve. That is called grace. So we see God's grace throughout history. We also see God's grace in this, in fact, in his inclusion of outcasts. This is my favorite part, his inclusion of outcasts. Look with me in verse 3 through 6 as I try to pronounce some of these names. <clears throat> in Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, here are are four outcasts mentioned, and now please don't take offense to this, please don't take offense, all of them are women. Four outcasts intentionally mentioned. Listen, 
Now, this is huge for Matthew because when you wrote a genealogy, it was a legal document. And the one thing that you did is you never mentioned women. I don't know why. It was a cultural thing. And by women, let me just say this. Obviously, they were wrong. They were wrong in doing that, but it's how they did things. So they were never mentioned. Now, Matthew mentions four women, right? You want to talk about scandalous that when people are reading his genealogy, if you're a Jewish person going, okay, I'm reading the genealogy, yes, yes, well, wait a minute, Tamar, wait, Rahab, wait, wait, Ruth, what, well, wait a minute, Bathsheba, we wouldn't call her by name, she was so bad, she was just the wife of Uriah. I mean, I mean, you look at that and you go, oh my gosh, that was scandalous. It was scandalous that he would even mention their names. But let's think about the people he did mention, Tamar. You may not know the story of Tamar, you can read it in the Old Testament in Genesis, but you know who Tamar was? She was a lady who was married and lost her husband. And then her father-in-law, Judah, said, I'm going to make sure you have my third son, and he's going to live with you, he's going to marry you, you're going to have kids, and life will be great. And Judah lied to her. So she was so upset, guess what she did? She, she disguised herself as a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law and slept with him. She was guilty of incest, and she was guilty of prostitution or being unfaithful. And on top of that, guess this, she was a Gentile, meaning she wasn't from a Jewish heritage, she was a Gentile. So it's bad enough that Matthew has mentioned a woman in the genealogy, but now you're mentioning women who are not even of the Jewish descent, they're Gentiles, they're not Jews. That was Tamar. And then he mentions, next he mentions Rahab. You know who Rahab was? She was a professional prostitute. That's who she was. The only good thing about Rahab was when, when they sent over the 12 spies, she made sure two of them didn't get killed. She, she protected a couple of them. But guess what? Was she an Israelite or was she a Gentile? She was a Gentile. And then we've got Ruth. How many of you read the book of Ruth before? Oh, it's a beautiful book. But even the fact that Ruth is mentioned is, is a bit scandalous. Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites were predominantly those who were extreme pagans. That's why, Mo, that's why Ruth, showing her devotion to Naomi, says, I will go where you go, your home will be my home, and your God will be my God. I mean, she's at a point where she's still a pagan in the book of Ruth. They were pagans, meaning they weren't Jews, they were Gentiles. And she even violated the Mosaic law by marrying Boaz, who was her relative, who did marry her to redeem her. That was even a violation of the Mosaic law. Some scholars would even say this, if you read the book of Ruth, you remember when Ruth tried to and kind of tell Boaz, hey, I'm, I'm kind of digging you, Boaz? Remember that? What did she do? She laid at the end of the bed. In that culture, that was sexually forward. Unacceptable. But Ruth did that. And then he mentions the wife of Uriah, who was that? It was Bathsheba. She is a known adulterer and also a Gentile. So think about this for a minute. In this genealogy, Matthew is mentioning four outcasts, four women, and not just any four women, four women who had spotty backgrounds, right? Four women who we weren't sure that we would put in our genealogy. Now, why was it important for Matthew to mention? Why was it crucial for her, him to include these outcasts? It's because of this. Number one, it showed the span of God's grace. Here are four women with absolutely spotty reputations, but it's a reminder that their background and their behavior did not exclude them from God's grace. Come on, did you hear that? It reminded them that their background, not being a Jew, and their behavior did not exclude them from the grace of God. In fact, they're the ones that were part of his story. 
They're mentioned in Matthew. Can you imagine? Listen, if you and I lived back then, come on, everybody, just stop writing notes for me. And just think about it this way. If you and I lived back then, would we find ourselves in this book? If we lived during the time of Jesus, or we lived during the time in the Old Testament, I mean, is our lives making such a difference that there would have been a book of Doug? I don't know. I mean, would there have been a moment when the genealogy was mentioned that my name, that Doug would have shown? I mean, that would have been odd, right? Perez and Safez and Doug. And so that would have been odd, but I mean, is there, am I living my life in such a way that if I lived back then, my, my name would have been, I don't know. And so it's a big deal that these four ladies are mentioned, my point. It's a huge deal. Now that these were ladies, but they had spotty reputations. Why? Because the reminder that, that God's grace goes beyond our background, that God's grace goes beyond our behaviors. And he still invites us to be in his story too, just like he did them. But let me tell you another reason it's important that he mentioned these four ladies. Because it's a reminder that Jesus always has been, that he is and always will be a friend of sinners. Always. Always. You can look at Tamar, and you can't say anything at the end of the day other than she sinned. She blew it. Shouldn't have done it. You look at Rahab. Yeah, she protected God's people, but she was a professional prostitute. You look at Bathsheba. She knew what she was doing, right? But the end of the day reminds us that the outcasts are still the very people that God's grace covers. The outcasts are still the people that God's going after. And it reminds me when I read this that God is still, that Jesus is and always will be the friend of sinners. So when we read this story, when we read the genealogy, you go back and read all the names you want to. When you read it, it's a beautiful reminder that he's telling the Jews and us that Jesus is the promised king. He's on the scene now. He's been here. This Jesus of Nazareth, that's the guy I'm talking about. But when you read the genealogy, you find out about the grace of God, that all throughout history, God had been faithful when people were faithless. And the fact that he mentioned these outcasts, a reminder that our background and our behavior does not exclude us from being a recipient of the grace of God. Now today, I don't know where you find yourself. I don't know what you're thinking, where you might find yourself spiritually or emotionally, but here's what I want you to know. I don't know where you find yourself, where you're at mentally or you like where your heart is at today, but here's what I do know. In Jesus is the only place you can find a connection with God. That's it. Some of you come in today, and here's what you need. You need forgiveness. Some of you come in today and you feel like you need acceptance. You're struggling. Listen, all that can only be found in the person and the work of Jesus. In him, we find forgiveness. In him, we find acceptance. In him is the only person we can find eternal life, right, in Jesus. Here's why I say that. Because some of us have some jacked up lives, don't we? Some of us got some things going on that is just terrible. And here's what I know about all of us. Most of us, not all of us, but most of us never start, we don't start with going to Christ first and trying to find what we need in him first. We start with our best friends, our BFFs. Some of you, unfortunately, start with Facebook, hoping you can find all your answers on Facebook, Right? If you weren't laughing, that means you live your life on Facebook and you need to stop that, right? We go to all the wrong places. We've got all these struggles going. Maybe our marriages are struggling. Maybe our finances are in jeopardy. Maybe my, just my passion for the Lord is just not there. And we go to all the wrong places to try to find something to bring back that life to us. Listen, it's only in Jesus do we find all those things. 
Only in him can we find the joy of our salvation. Only in him can we find reconciliation in our marriage. Only in him can we find the wisdom to deal with our finances. Only in him can we find the forgiveness that we desperately need. Only in him can we find the acceptance that we're trying to find from everybody else. Only in Jesus can you find those things. But I also want you to know this, wherever you find yourself today, that through the genealogy we're reminded of his grace. I would venture to say that everybody in this room has had moments in your life and seasons of your life where you've been totally unfaithful to God. Would you agree with that? If you're not sure, you're probably all right now, right? We've all been unfaithful. But has God stopped being faithful during our times of unfaithfulness? Has God stopped loving and caring and being present during those times? No. See, when I read the genealogy of Jesus, no, am I reminded that he is the king where I find everything, I'm also reminded that in him, in him, I'm not excluded by him from his grace because of my behavior. I'm not excluded because of my background. He loves me just because. That I can receive his grace and experience it. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never truly trusted Christ as your Savior, here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Today can be the day that you have a connection with God. Listen to me. Please look at me. Please don't miss this. Today, He's inviting you to be part of his story. So your name will never make it into this book, but there's a better book than this book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And your name can make it into that book. So that one day when you stand before holy God and there is roll call, your name is called out. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, listen to me, there is connection with God, but it's only found through the work of Christ. And all it takes for you to do is to simply say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've rebelled against you. And I believe that Jesus truly died on the cross. And that he loves me. And I want you to forgive me of my sin and be the boss and the master and the Lord of my life. That's all you have to do to have connection with God. And then you're guaranteed that your name will be written in the big book, the book of life. And when we start singing in a moment, if you've ever made that decision, I challenge you that we're going to have some deacons and their wives up to the front. I'll be here. Love to talk to you. Love to encourage you that way. But if you're here today and you're a believer, I just want to remind you of something. I was, I was on the way in, I was listening to 88.3, and they threw up an old hymn that I have not heard in probably maybe 20 years. And I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to tell you the lyrics to it. And the line says this, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. You ever heard that one before? Man, what a reminder that my sin is not greater than his grace. That his grace can cover my stuff, my junk, my failures. And some of you today that are believers, man, you're wallowing in self-pity today. And maybe what you need to do is come to this altar and just get on your knees and just pray to the Holy God and say, God, here I am. I, 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 I thank you for your grace, and I want you to radically change my life. Or if you're a believer today and you understand the grace of God, when we sing in a moment, would you just celebrate the amazingness, how great our God really is and what he's done for you? May it not just be words that kind of fall out of your mouth and just kind of roll off the tongue. May it be the celebration in your heart that we have a God who's shown us grace. You know what that means? We've received what we do not what? Deserve. And that's his love. And if that doesn't get you fired up, there's a problem. So I'm going to ask you, everybody stand with me. Everybody stand up. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And as you stand today, I just want you to think about it. I just want you to think today. Every head bowed and every eye closed. 
for those of you here today that say, you know, I do not know that if I were to die in this moment, that I would spend eternity in a place called heaven. Well, today, you, you can have your connection with God. Today, you can know that your name is going to be written in the Lamb's book of life. It would require surrender on your part. It requires acknowledging that Jesus is the promised king. And it requires you receiving the grace that he's offered you. Hey, listen, some of you, every head bowed, every eye closed, some of you who don't know Christ, listen, you're going to say this. Well, I need to clean my life up first. I need to straighten some relationships up first. No, you don't. You're the one that got yourself in that mess. You're not going to get out of it. You need him. In Jesus, you find forgiveness of sins. In Jesus, you find love and acceptance. And in Jesus, you find your connection with God. That's it. And if you never trust him today, but today you want to, I'm just going to ask you with every head bowed and every eye closed, just slip your hand up, put it down. Nobody's watching. I'm going to be praying for you. I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going not to come to you. I just want to know that I need to be praying for some folks. Just slip it up and put it right back down. Amen. 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 Wow. Amen. And I'm just going to challenge you with this today. Please don't let pride keep you from making that decision. You can make it right there in your seat. Talk to me as you leave. Or you can make your way up to the front where our men and our ladies are going to be, standing on the sides. I'd love to talk to you. But make that decision today. And then if you're a believer in the room today, man, we are recipients of grace. We should want to sing from the rooftops that I've been given what I don't deserve. The love, the grace, and the favor of God. And so we should just celebrate the, the grace that we have. And if we're struggling, this altar is open for us. So let's pray. God of heaven, I love you. And I thank you for all that you do for us. And I just pray for those right now that maybe they don't have a relationship with you, that today they wouldn't leave not knowing. God, what a miserable feeling that would be to walk out those doors in a little bit, not knowing where they're going to spend eternity. God, we are reminded today that in Jesus we find forgiveness. In Jesus we find eternal life. And no matter how bad our background is, or no matter how bad our behavior is, your grace, your grace is greater than all our sin. And I pray for a few people to receive that today. But can I pray for those of us that are believers? May we celebrate that. May we not just sing a song because we're supposed to and it's in the, the service, it's in the order we're supposed to do it. But God, we would sing from the very depths of our soul about how great you are, how magnificent you are. Not because of anything other than you've loved us and you've shown us grace and we don't deserve it. And therefore, we will live our lives for you. God, may this be a time to awaken us today. Just as Matthew wrote to the Jews to awaken them, may you awaken us to you today. God, move in this place. May your Holy Spirit fall fresh. For it's in your precious and your Holy Son's name we pray. Amen, amen. You move as God will lead you.